I worked very hard on the title of this series. So I, I, um, I just finished, if you're new or visiting, uh, I just finished a, a three-year series in Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and I loved it. It was a blast. I treasure the story of David, and um, I feel very comfortable in the Old Testament. It's uh, what I spent most of my time on in school, and... Um, Anyways, so when that series was over, I had a choice, you know, where to go next. Um, And I kind of was leaning towards Genesis, but I had people telling me, well, you should consider Matthew, right? And so I felt like probably I shouldn't ignore good counsel, and so I waffled back and forth for a while. Um, But always leaning in favor of Genesis, uh, I didn't feel good about just making that decision, so I, I went ahead and I, I handed the decision to two people that I, that I love and trust. And um, they were unified and had good reasons to recommend Matthew. So I was like, oh, okay, a little disgruntled, right? And so uh, a couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I sat down to study Uh, and prepare, and uh, I opened up the book of Matthew, and this is what I read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, I can't think of a better sequel to the book of Samuel. All the promises of the book of Samuel are yes and amen in Jesus and in the book of Matthew. So, uh, but I, I do think we need to do a little bit of background work um, because the book of Matthew is, um, is distinct. Uh, actually, all the Gospels are distinct from the work we've been doing in the, in, in the book of Samuel. Samuel is a history. Um, and we're going to have a genre shift right now. So I'm going to do uh, a little bit of legwork on the front end to sort of explain to you Um, exactly the distinctions between a history, which we've been spending a lot of time in, and uh, and the Gospels. And I think the best way to do this uh, is to start in John, believe it or not. So um, I want to read to you two verses from the end of the book of John. Um, And so I've got them here on the screen. You can turn if you'd like. This is John 21, 25. This is actually, I think, the last verse of the book of John, or the second to last. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, besides that being a lovely sentence, uh, it says a lot, right? Now, of course it's true. Like, if you think about it for more than a f- five minutes, of course you realize that, uh, you know, not everything Jesus did and said was written down in the Gospels. Um, which leads to a significant question. Why did you choose what you chose to include? Right? So, John just admitted, like, I chose not to include this Detail, these details, these conversations, these actions, these miracles, right? Why? Why choose one and not the other? 
All right. Let me read you one more verse from the end of the book of John. This is John 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All of a sudden our question about why you chose this or that episode or this or that conversation or this or that miracle, all those questions are answered in this verse. Why did John select the particular episodes of Jesus' life, the particular conversations among Jesus' disciples, the particular teachings of Jesus? Why did he include what he included? And why did he exclude what he excluded? Because he's got a particular purpose in mind. And that purpose is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. I think that's all we need to answer the genre question. We're shifting from a history to a gospel. Alright? So what is a gospel? Well, uh, it's not anything particularly profound. A gospel is a biography. There's a lot of... um, There's a lot of writing on the distinctions between the Gospels and your everyday biography of this or that ancient figure. I think most of those distinctions aren't important. A a biography follows the life of an individual, and that's what we're doing in the Gospels. Now, I want to give you a definition of a biography. These biographies... They're, they're just pervade ancient literature, and, and they pervade modern literature. Um, so let's answer the question, what is a biography first? And then we'll pivot into the question, what is a gospel? All right. So a biography is a historical account. What makes, uh, say, a, a biography on George Washington distinct from uh, uh, a uh, a historical fiction of the Revolutionary War. What makes it distinct? Anybody? It's true, right? It actually happened. Like, there's a whole lot of writing, some of it actually quite helpful, um, on uh, fictional accounts of the Revolutionary War. So you can wrap your mind around aspects of uh, that context. But what makes those distinct from the biographies that win Pulitzers on the American fathers is that these guys are writing true facts, right? They're explaining details about this person's life or this contemporary's life, and those details are true and accurate. And if to the degree that they decide to add things, right, that aren't true, all of a sudden the genre shifts and everybody knows it, right? Like, Say, say they just add one episode. It's a, it's a totally legit biography of George Washington, except they add one episode that's fiction. Nobody is labeling that a biography anymore. It's labeled historical fiction, even if there's one aspect of that story that's not true. So the first characteristic of biography is that it's a historical account of what? Of selected episodes of an individual's life. What makes a biography distinct from a history? You're following one person. You're following one person. Now, 
That's simple enough. But I just said selected episodes. And that shifts to the third aspect of this definition. A historical account, a biography is a historical account of selected episodes of an individual's life which are curated for a particular purpose and pointed in a particular direction. Here's what I mean. As soon as you bring, as soon as you bring selection into the conversation, as soon as you have a whole mess of data, a whole mess of episodes, a whole big chunk of conversations and, and uh, recorded lectures and, and historical episodes, as soon as you have a whole bunch of material to choose from as a biographer, and, and then all of a sudden you begin to select particular things to discuss and select particular aspects to, to, uh, to emphasize, all of a sudden you've started to betray your purposes, Right? There's kind of a modern myth, which is that some histories, histories, some historical texts can be unbiased. That's not true. Everyone writes from a perspective and for a purpose. As soon as pen hits paper, purpose is driving the selection of episodes. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? Which is why we have, uh, if you go into the history section of uh, your bookstore, you're going to have accounts that are facing in two different directions, right? Just, I mean, just think American history. You're going to have, you're going to have American histories that are facing in, in one direction, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, and you're going to have, you're going to have histories facing in another direction, uh, which, which is the recent one that Brian was talking about, the Patriots War, right? These are two different directions, same evidence, same accounts, but they're written for different purposes and they're written to different audiences. Does that make sense? Now, if you keep that in mind, it naturally begins to resolve some questions you might have about the Gospels. For instance, everyone who comes to Christ later in life has the same question about the Gospels. Why are there four? Right? It's a good question. Why are there four Gospels? Well, the answer is simple. If you consider what a Gospel is, it's a biography that's written for a particular purpose and facing a particular direction. And there are four Gospels because there are four, four biographies written for four different purposes and to four different people groups. Does that make sense? Why, why is... Why is... Uh, is uh, uh, Matthew, distinct from Luke. Anybody know the answer? They're two different people groups, right? Two different audiences. Matthew's written to Jews and sojourners who are familiar with the Scriptures. You know what's interesting? He starts his genealogy of Jesus at Abraham. Right? Luke's written to Gentile believers. Or Gentile almost believers. <laughs> right? And where does he start his genealogy? Adam. Okay? You see what I'm saying? All four Gospels are written with a particular purpose in mind and to a particular people group in a particular direction. All right, so I think we have now all the information we need to answer the question, what is a Gospel? All right? So a Gospel is a historical account of selected episodes of Jesus' life. 
which are curated for a particular purpose and which are pointed in a particular direction. Okay? Now, we're not reading all the Gospels in this series. We're just reading one. So the first two questions we have to answer about this book are, what is the purpose of Matthew's Gospel? What is the purpose of Matthew's Gospel? And the second question we have to answer is, what is the direction of Matthew's Gospel? To whom is it being written? Now, questions like these have answers. But your answers should always come from the text. You'll find, I'm sure, a whole lot written to answer these questions. And you're looking at like a whole uh, knee-deep chunk of archaeological data. And you're looking at a whole bunch of sort of cultural studies and socio-economic studies of the culture at the time of, of, of Matthew's letter. You don't need all that stuff. There's a big uh, misunderstanding uh, of the Bible, and that is that you need to go to school to understand it. The Bible has within it everything you need to understand it. I, I haven't said that enough recently, but like the first half of the Samuel series, I said it every single time, and people were like, yeah, yeah, Ben, yeah, you keep on repeating yourself. There is very little that I'm going to say this morning as important as these words. You can right now understand the Bible. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your educational background. You may have never even seen a Bible. You may have come in here for reasons altogether distinct from wanting to learn more about Jesus. But you pick that book up and you can get it because everything you need to understand it is in it. So we have these two important questions and we must go to the text to find the answers. Now, good news, both answers are in the first verse. Okay? Now look, I started this series and... Every time I start anything, every time I preach a sermon, I end up calling Brett um, for some reason or another. And I called Brett and I said, you know what drives me nuts? Uh, everybody spends the first, uh, the first uh, sermon in their series on Matthew, uh, which, which should be devoted exclusively to the genealogy. And they... They spend it talking about Gospels and the genre of Gospels and the nature of Gospels. So I'm sorry. (laughs) But to make it up to you, I'm spending two weeks in the genealogy, okay? So we're all okay here. Nobody can be mad at me. Um, So, okay. The first week of this series is going to uh, split the first verse of Matthew into three chunks. And we're going to save the fourth chunk of the first verse of Matthew all for next week. All right? So open your Bibles to Matthew 1. And I want to read the first verse together. Matthew 1. Hold up your Bible when you got it. Awesome. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to read that again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And so this week we're going to split this first chunk into three sections. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about those words. The second, the son of, uh, I'm sorry, the book of the genealogy, first section, Jesus Christ, second section, son of David, third section. This sentence is packed. Okay, this sentence is saturated and you can't blow past it. All right, so first section, the book of the genealogy, the book of the genealogy. Now, let me tell you, I have a pet peeve. If you've known me for any length of time and we talk about preaching, you'll hear me talk about this. Preachers too often talk about the languages of Greek and Hebrew as if they're magic. In fact, there's a book that you should read. Uh, it's, It's called Exegetical Fallacies, which sounds really fancy. It just means bad preaching. Bad preaching. Um, it's written by D.A. Carson. And the first, probably a third of the book, is devoted to issues that happen when you start treating the languages as if they're magic. <laughs> Here's what I mean. Preachers will say, now this word here, this word is amazing. This word is a miracle. This word is packed with meaning. This word means not just this, but it means this and that and this other thing and this other thing too and, and also five more other things, right? It's, a, it's just, that's bad, that's bad linguistics. That's not how languages work. Words almost every time mean only one thing. Um, and, and what's interesting is when they mean more than one thing, the author makes a point to show you, okay? So, I, it drives me nuts when I'm sitting in uh, uh, a pew, and I hear somebody say, now, this word is particularly amazing, right? We don't have anything like it in English. I usually go, oh, here we go. Okay? <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> right? But, this word that we translate genealogy is particularly amazing, right? <laughs> okay, so I've got it here in, in Greek and English. Biblos Geneseos. Biblos Geneseos. You don't need to, to know that necessarily, but I wanted you to write it out so you could immediately make the connection. Biblos Geneseos. The book of the genealogy. That's where we get that translation. The book of the genealogy. Biblos. What comes to mind? Biblos. First thing. What? Bible. Good. It should. That's where we get our word. Bible. Geneseos. Anybody? Say it again. Beginning. Beginning? Yes. What's the translation of the word? Genesis. Origins. Beginning. Uh, generations sometimes. Okay. So... There are only two times where these words are used in the scriptures back to back, right? The scriptures that Matthew and his audience would have been intimately familiar with, these words only occur two times, all right? Now, I'm going to read you the first time. It's in Genesis 2, 4. 
These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, Geneseos. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And then what follows? The story of the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay? Next time, the only other time it occurs is in Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The book of the generations of Adam. Biblos Geneseos, same words. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then what follows? A generational record of the line of Abram, or of Adam, I'm sorry, Adam, including ages of the ancients, the taking up of Enoch, and the story of the flood. Okay. Also noteworthy, Genesis is the name solidified. By this point, when Matthew is writing, Genesis is the name for the first book. All right? The first book of the Torah is popularly called Genesis. Okay. What does this all mean? First, I think it means that genealogy is an insufficient translation to account for what follows here. Genealogy is not the right term. And I'm not, this is not coming from me, by the way. Every, every single commentator I read says, I don't know how we continue to use this as a translation. It's not sufficient. Okay. So set that aside. And what, what should we be reading here? All right. Well, bo- these words only ever appear together twice, both significant and both associated with Adam and creation. Okay. And not only because they're familiar with the scriptures, but because the, they just are using the term Genesis all the time, those saturated in the scriptures would have read these words and would have recognized the parallel. So I'm going to go ahead and steal from my favorite commentators their translation of this verse, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of Abraham. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, now keep that in your pocket. All right? Let's keep reading. The book of the Genesis of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, you probably know this. But even though you know this, you probably don't think often about the significance of it. Christ is not a last name. Right? Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Right? Everybody knows that, sort of, who's been around church for a little while. But it, I, want, I want to highlight this for a second, because what Matthew just said was groundbreaking. Okay? What, what Matthew just claimed about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing is groundbreaking. Okay, Christ, 
and Messiah and anointed. These are all the same word. Christ Greek, Messiah Hebrew, anointed English. Read it accordingly. Now, what's interesting is the first major appearance of this term, Messiah, right, is in Hannah's song. Do you remember? Do you remember Hannah's song? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of what? The Christ. The Messiah. The Anointed. You have a seed planted here in the Old Testament and it grows and it grows and it grows. What is Matthew claiming when he calls Jesus Jesus Christ? What is he claiming? At the very least, to call Jesus Jesus Christ is Matthew saying that Jesus is the future king promised to Abraham, the scepter of the prophecies of Jacob, the anointed king of Hannah's song, the promised king of David's house, the triumphant king of David's songs, the shepherd king of Ezekiel's prophecies, the holy king of Daniel's dreams, and God with us, the servant king of Isaiah's poems. All of that, the entirety of the messianic whispers in the Old Testament land on Jesus on purpose. It's the first thing you learn about Jesus in the book of Matthew is that He's the Christ. The Christ. The King that's been promised for ages. Right? Okay. So, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The the Son of David. Jesus Christ. The Son of David. All right, now we've got to keep reading. To get this, we, we need to keep reading. So uh, if you've closed your Bible, open it back up to Matthew 1, and we're going to read 2 to 17. All right, 2 to 17. I'm going to butcher these names, guys, as I always do. Feel free to make fun of me later. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nation. And Nation the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltel, and Sheltel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achan, 
and Achim the father of Eludi, and Elud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay. Now wait a second. We're about to get into the weeds. There's a, there's a couple issues here. Couple questions that are raised by reading this list. I'm going to distill this li- th- those questions into three concerns. One, this ancestral record is not exhaustive. Okay, At the very least, there are not enough names between the Babylonian uh, exile and Christ's generation. There's not enough. Okay, so that should raise your raise your. Uh, Questions. Okay, wait, hang on. What's going on? What is he doing here? Second, and seemingly most obvious, there's not actually 14 generations listed in each of these groups. All right? Hang on. What's going on? And, and third, and this is the one that gets the most press, Matthew's list is different than Luke's list. All right? Weird. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. Don't ever, ever be afraid to ask questions. Because when you have this tension moment where you go, ah, ah, what's going on? Like there's, there's some sort of cultural misconception that says when you feel that, you need to just have faith. What? <laughs> Wait, if that's what faith is, then faith in what? Faith in faith? No. Ask questions. Draw near. The text is doing something important. And when you find yourself going, you're you're about there. You're you're this close. All right. What's going on here is that Matthew is tracing the royal line of David. Matthew's genealogy is demonstrating that Jesus is the true son of David. And how is he doing that? He highlights the legal line of royal inheritance. Does that make sense? Watch, watch any BBC show about the monarchs. Like, this guy dies all of a sudden. Like, second cousin, twice removed, comes in. It's the new king of England. What? There's a legal line. Now, in the kingdom, that legal line is baptized. Right? In the kingdom of Israel, that legal line is legit. But Matthew's purpose is not to trace the biological lineage of Jesus through Joseph. It's not his point. His point is to trace the royal line from Abraham to David when he was established king, and then from David all the way to everyone who would have if the kingdom of Israel had continued after the exile. Everyone who would have inherited the throne. Make sense? All right, so that's the answer to our first question. Well, this is not exhaustive. There's not enough names in this list. Well, there are, if you approach it as the royal line. Okay, now, 
The second one's a little bit funnier. What? 14 generations. 14 generations. 14 generations. Interesting. Did he just forget to include a name in the third set? Right? As some claim. No. I'm going to prove it to you in two ways. I love this. I love this. Okay? I love this. Listen to his summary, his own summary of his genealogy. Listen. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Who did he just mention twice? David, right? David pops up. Now, this just doesn't happen only in the summary. Listen, at the end of uh, uh, verse 5. This is the first set of 14 names. And Jesus, the father of David, the king. Second set of 14 names. And David was the father of Solomon. Well, okay, why include David twice? Seems redundant. Could he be proposing that Jesus is the son of David? That's my first suggestion. That this question resolves in the duplication of the name David right at the center, right at the heart of the genealogy. Matthew repeats the, the name David twice. Now, Now, that's not the only reason I know. What's the point of the genealogy? 14. Why 14? This is all over the commentaries. Why 14? Everybody's like, why 14? And there's all sorts of ingenious <laughs> solutions. What, 14 7 times 2? 7 is the perfect number? Convenient, right? Why 14? Okay. Uh, have you ever gone uh, to, like... Uh, like, a, like an old building like in D.C. or something. Usually there's like a cornerstone. And on this cornerstone, it's got like, uh, it's got like uh, the Muse- National Gallery, right? Est, X-V-L-L-V-X-V-I-I. What? What is that? Somebody tell me, what, what does that mean? You guys talk quietly when I ask you questions. I can't. Roman numerals. Yeah, it's the year the building was made in in Roman numerals. Well, well, numeral means number. (laughs) Roman numbers, right? Okay. Uh, There was a point after which we started using numbers to represent numbers. But before that, almost everybody used letters. Right? The Romans did it and the Jews did it. I want you to just guess what David's name is in number form. Just guess. Okay. 14. <laughs> every, every letter in Hebrew has a corresponding number, right? DVD. There are no vowels in Hebrew, so you're just looking at consonants. DVD. 464. David. David, David. David, David. David, 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 David. Right? What is Matthew doing with this list? He's proving to you. He's proving to you that Jesus is the son of David. 
Matthew claims that Jesus is the true son of David, and he proves it in two ways. One, he demonstrates that Jesus is the legal successor in David's royal line. And then two, he demonstrates that God has orchestrated history from the call of Abraham to the rise of David to the birth of Jesus to establish the throne of the true son of David. God's sovereign work was written over the royal line of David. Right? He's coming. He's coming. He's here. Right? The genealogy teaches you not only that Jesus is the true and rightful successor of of David's throne, but also that God was all over this thing from the beginning. David's name is literally written all over the first chapter of this book. Literally. Okay. So, I want to take these conclusions and I want to summarize what Matthew is saying in the first verse of his book. Okay? The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Book of the Genesis. A new creation is coming. Of Jesus Christ, through Jesus, the promised King of Israel. The son of David, who has the legal rights of David's royal line. And sneak preview, we're not going to get into this until next week, but sneak preview, the son of Abraham, through whom the whole world will be saved. A new creation is coming through Jesus, the promised king of Israel, who has the legal rights of David's royal line, and through whom the world will be saved. So, our first two questions. We can answer them now. What is the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew's Gospel was written to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised King of Israel. The true Son of David. And that all of Israel's history has led to His birth, which signals a new creation, a reversal of the fall of Adam, culminating in the reign of King Jesus by whom the world will be saved. Now that's a long sentence, but I think it's a good one. Amen? Come on. Amen. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Matthew's Gospel was written to teach us, to demonstrate, to prove to us that Jesus is the promised King of Israel. The true Son of David. And that from the beginning... All of Israel's history has led to his birth, which signals a new creation, a reversal of the fall of Adam, culminating in the reign of King Jesus by whom the world will be saved. That's the purpose. We're going to come back to this definition often. Matthew never leaves this definition. He's dancing in it. All right, if that's the purpose of the gospel, then in what direction is it pointed? What is the direction of the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew's Gospel is written for anyone who has searched the ancient Scriptures to learn about the promised King. For any whose hope is stirred by God's ancient promises. For Jews and sojourners and believing Gentiles who have read the Word of God and recognized the shadows of a better kingdom. Now, I could have just said it was written for Jews. 
A lot of people say merely it was written for Jews. In some ways, that's true. Matthew assumes you've read the Bible. He assumes you have questions about certain passages. He, he just vaguely references the Bible every single chapter over and over and over again. It was written to Jewish communities. But when you say Matthew was written for Jews, what does that mean for me? <laughs> I'm not a Jew. It's not true. It's not complete enough. Matthew is written for anyone who has searched the Scriptures in hope. It's written for anyone who knows the Scriptures and has questions. Anyone who's heard the promises of God and, and wonders how and when and where. So, it's written for you too. Okay. So we know the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. And we know in which direction it's pointed. What does that mean for you? What does this, what does this mean for you? Just this sentence. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? How do I, how do I apply that one verse? First, if you're content here, if you're content here in this broken kingdom, this book is not for you. It's not. If you like it here, if you don't want anything to change, this, is, this book is bad news for you. I want to repeat something my old pastor used to say. He said, if this is a hobby for you, get a boat. Get, get a boat. <laughs> This is going to disrupt your world because the message of this first verse, the message of the introduction of Matthew is that a king is coming. However, if you are weary and if you are burdened, and if you despair because this culture or this society or this government or this world is broken, this book was written to give you hope. I pray, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I pray that you would look on this world and, and feel sorrow. You should feel an alien here. This is a broken place. Watch the news. More than one channel. Watch the news. It's bad. It's bad. This world is a broken place. Matthew just told you that a king is coming. A king whose reign was orchestrated from the beginning of time. A king is coming. The promised Christ. Not just any king. The king who will fulfill all the promises of God. A king is coming. And his name is Jesus. And he will turn this world upside down. And on the other side of his work, there will be no more sorrow, and no more pain, no more tears. Sorrow can be a blessing. Heavy shoulders, tears, 
they can represent a hope in a better place, a better kingdom. That kingdom is promised in this verse. Okay, next. If you've read the Bible, or if you're reading the Bible, or if you just opened the Bible and you just read a few verses and you have questions, this book was written to answer them. This is not just accidentally a sweeping introduction. This is not just Matthew's hyperbolic attempt to impress you so you'll be hooked and keep reading. This is true. Jesus is the answer to all of the tensions of the scriptures. Like all the promises of the scriptures build and build and build. And then Jesus is here. You read this genealogy, you can't help but see God's work from Genesis 12 all the way to Matthew 1. It's all for Jesus. All of it's for Jesus. And if you know this, if you've read these words, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, all of a sudden the questions you have about the scriptures start to be resolved. And as you keep reading, they will continue to be resolved. What is the meaning of the law? What is the meaning of the law? Why is it there? Read Matthew. What does it mean that the kingdom will come? What does it mean that... that The sun will shatter the nations with a rod of iron. Read Matthew. The answers are here. We have this weird uh, impulse. Like, there's a lot of uh, hermeneutics, courses in uh, Bible schools and seminaries. And they're, they're, they're there for good reason to help you learn how to read the Bible. Help you learn how to read the Old Testament and, and understand it, right? Like they're there for a reason and it's a good reason, but like the, the, <laughs> the hidden uh, truth sometimes is that the Bible teaches us how to read the Bible. <laughs> you don't know how to read the Old Testament, just read Matthew. Just read the, just read the New Testament. The Bible gives you answers to your questions and Matthew has a ton of them. So, it's okay that you have questions. We're going to answer them. Okay? And finally, if you've misunderstood who Jesus is, or if you've forgotten His majesty, or if you've diminished His importance, or if you've neatly fit him into a small corner of your life, this book will rock your world. We're only in the first verse. We're, we're just in the first verse. And Matthew has found three ways to say that Jesus is the king of all kings. Three ways. And, and how many, like 11 words? How many? Th- th- three different ways to say Jesus is the king of kings. And now, I want to tease this out for a minute because, like, I want you to feel the weight of the majesty of our King Jesus. Um, When I was in my formative years of young adulthood, there were these t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. 
Do you remember this? All over. Jesus is my homeboy. And it had a picture, like one of those old school pictures of Jesus, and just under it in big 70s-esque letters, Jesus is my homeboy. Okay, okay. I see how you got there, maybe. I see how you got there. Jesus is a friend to sinners, right? Okay, but he is your king. He is your king. Um, I, I don't say this enough. If you ever doubt the miracle about the miracle of the Spirit's daily work in your local church, right here, right now, you ever think like, "Is God here? Where is God in this?" <sighs> look, look at the work of Gary Brown. <laughs> you know what I give him? I say, I want to, I want to talk about King Jesus is the King, and He's the Son of David, and we're going to talk a little bit about, you know. The genealogy. Um, we're going to talk about like Christ, the fulfillment of scriptures. I just three weeks, two weeks ago, I just threw spitballed a bunch of themes, you know. And then the Spirit was working in Gary's heart. This happens all the time, and he's saying, "Sing, praise me." Thus. <laughs> Praise me in this way. You're going to read these words and, and you're going to praise me in, in this way. It happens all the time. Like I look at the, the, the words we sing right before I'm about to preach and I just, I, I, I get teary like, like a little kid. And I just, I praise the Lord because His work is evident. Here's what I mean. You are not allowed to sing the words, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. You are not allowed to sing those words unless you are willing to sing the words, Hallelujah, sing to Jesus. His the scepter. His the throne. Hallelujah. His the triumph. His the victory alone. He is our friend, but He's our King. And when you see Him, fully realized into His image by His grace, you will bow. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord! Don't forget His majesty. He's the king of kings. Matthew chose his first sentence to tell you that in three ways. If he hasn't become king of your life, you're off. Be careful. We're reading through Hebrews. I don't know if you were here last week. One of the most terrifying warnings in the scriptures. He is king of all kings. It is his only appropriate role. If he is less than that for you, you need to repent. Amen? Amen. I don't want to finish the sermon on those words, though. (laughs) You need to repent. I love you. I want to finish these words by praising Jesus. 
who is our king. Bow with me, please. Well, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this book. Thank you for our King. We praise you for the tremendous promises that are woven into this one passage. All the sorrow that we feel, all the despair that we feel, all of the discomfort as sojourners in this broken wilderness, all of it resolves in the kingdom of Christ. Thank you for the rescue that we have in Jesus. Thank you for orchestrating all of history to establish His throne. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.